Thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 144, The Siege of Leningrad, Part 1. The German soldiers facing Leningrad considered the balance of their job over. They had fought through hundreds of kilometers, dealt with numerous counterattacks, had won most of them, but now it was time to take the city before them. But then came rumors that the city would not be attacked directly. Some had heard that the city, now surrounded, would be starved into submission. Others heard that the Finns were working their way south from above the city. Still, however the end played out, it was still the end. But if they did get a chance to fight their way into the city, that was all right, too. Army Group North had lost some 80,000 men in getting here. The end of the struggle would be dedicated to them in the form of revenge. As covered last time, the Germans' capture of Schlüsselburg on September 9th at the bottom left corner of Lake Ladoga cut off Leningrad's ground communications with the rest of the country. This had been the last part before a true ring was established around the city, which allowed the Germans to declare to the world and themselves that Leningrad was thus cut off and was now considered a secondary theater of war. And thus labeled, Hitler was not willing to lose any more men of Army Group North, so announced that the city would be allowed to starve to death. Besides, now that Army Group North had accomplished its mission, really all but accomplished it, there were greener pastures of German military honor to be won in Moscow. But first, those invaders had to get there. As we have seen, Stalin's largest counteroffensive to date had taken place just east of Smolensk and had bloodied the Germans, specifically the men of Guderian and Hoth, and had made Hitler once again, focus to the north and south of Army Group Center. But now he was back, with his eyes on the prize, Moscow. After all, Leningrad was surrounded, and Army Group South was on its way to the Crimea. All this was made official with Directive Number 35 of September 6th. It read, in part, The initial successes in operations against enemy forces located between the adjoining flanks of army groups south and center, combined with further successes in the encirclement of enemy forces in the Leningrad region, have created prerequisites for the conduct of a decisive operation against army group Timoshenko, which is unsuccessfully conducting offensive operations in front of army group center. It must be destroyed decisively before the onset of winter, within the limited time indicated in existing orders. As for how this affected Lieb of Army Group North, he was to lose much of his first air fleet formations that would be transferred to Army Group Center no later than September 15th. Truly, Leningrad was viewed more and more in Berlin's rearview mirror. As bad as the situation was for General Popov of Voroshilov's Leningrad front, it was about to get worse. The Finns had one more headache to deliver to the recent invaders of their country. At a time when Popov needed all reserves that he had, and then some, Finnish forces attacked south on July 31st, just above Leningrad, 
against the Soviet 23rd Army. This attack forced the surprised Russians to fall back to a new defensive position, just 19 miles or 30 kilometers from the city's northern defensive line. The Finns were only bolstering their position. They did not intend to come any closer to the city. But Popov didn't know that, or couldn't trust in that, so was forced to move his 265th Rifle Division, the 48th Army's Reserve Force, and the 291st Rifle Division from the region of Krasnovardesk to the north to help protect the city from any further Finnish moves. As for Lieb, the commander of Army Group North, he found his plans altered once again by Berlin. Formerly, Lieb was going to use Hopner's Panzer Group to draw a firm inner line around Leningrad, with Reinhardt's 41st Motorized Corps and Schmidt's 39th Motorized Corps. Meantime, Kukler's 18th Army would form a broader partial line from the Gulf of Finland to Lake Ladoga. But then came Hitler's directive that would cause Lieb to give up two motorized corps and the 8th Air Corps to Army Group Center. This would leave the investment of Leningrad to the 39th Motorized Corps and then later, after begging for help, the 8th Panzer Division. As we saw last time, the Germans were able to move in close to Leningrad, especially in the area to the southeast of the city. They had also taken the two cities along Ladoga's southern edge. By the second week of September, Popov had some 452,000 men defending Leningrad, while two-thirds of them were to the south, facing the Germans. The attackers there had roughly the same number of men as the Soviet forces to the south of the city. Lieb used the men and armor he had for the time he had them, which showed Stalin that Voroshilov was not the man for the job. After all, the Germans had been able to take the Krasno-Vardisk area and push their way as close to Leningrad from the south as Pushkin, some ten miles south of town. As the situation worsened for the city, Stalin stepped in. On September 10th, he put General Zhukov in Voroshilov's, the front's commander's, place citing massive incompetence. Voroshilov had not told his leader that Schlesselberg had fallen, a fairly large development. Stalin had to learn it from an intercepted German message. Voroshilov had also failed to use the 85,000 men of the Soviet 54th Army just to the east of Schlesselberg to try to retake the city, which could have begun to unravel all of the work the Germans had achieved to the southeast of the city so far. And now that Stalin was involved, he was his normal whirlwind of activity. Yet, he wasn't saving the city. He was coming to terms with its end. As word got back to the Soviet leader that Leningrad's military council had decided to prepare to destroy the city's military installations to keep them out of German hands, he was meeting with Admiral Kunetsov to talk over scuttling the Baltic fleet. Again, it could not be allowed to be used by the Germans. So, as Zhukov was about to head out to take over in Leningrad, Stalin stopped him and said, 
it is an almost hopeless situation. By taking Leningrad and joining up with the Finns, the Germans can strike Moscow from the northeast, and then the situation will become even more critical. However, after this, he gave the general a piece of paper intended for Vorshilov. The note was Stalinesque in its briefness. Hand over command of the front to Zhukov and fly back to Moscow immediately. Getting into the details of the Leningrad front, Stalin then disbanded the severely mauled 48th Army and put them with the 54th, still east of Schlisselburg, at Volkov, again just south of Lake Ladoga. The 54th's orders were to fight their way to the east, to the southwest corner of the large lake, and wrestle control of the area from the Germans. Meanwhile, the 4th and 52nd Armies would defend the Volkov River that ran south-southwest to Lake Ilmen. Yes, the situation was all but hopeless, but as Zhukov was on his way, Stalin would do all he could to set the man up for success. In this case, that was defined as merely surviving the late summer. Zhukov arrived in Leningrad on September 13th with two experienced officers, Major Generals Fednyaninsky and Kozin. These two had been with Zhukov as he faced off with the Japanese 7th Army of the Kwangtan Army from May to September of 1939. That had been a costly affair on both sides. But though Zhukov had lost 20,000-something men, the Japanese had been beaten back so severely they would not contemplate war with Soviet Russia again, even after being invited by Hitler at the end of 1941, instead deciding to drive south and east against the territories controlled by the Europeans, which meant coming into conflict with the United States. But that is another story. To sum up, Zhukov had learned much at the Battle of Nomahom, one item which is that in war, men are lost. What matters is victory. And that was his attitude here as well. Now in charge of the Leningrad front, Zhukov had Kozin made his chief of staff, and their headquarters would be in the Smolny Institute. Built between 1806 and 1808, this imposing structure had first educated the daughters of the nobility under the established care of Catherine the Great. Later, the building was used by Lenin during the October Revolution. Then, it became the local headquarters of the Communist Party. And now, it would be used to try to save the city and the entire Northern Front from the invaders. The Military Council's plans to demolish anything was put on hold. They only had one order now from Zhukov to convey and carry out. Not a step back. Anyone guilty of violating this would be shot. Looking at the maps of the area to the south and east of Leningrad, Zhukov appraised his situation. The Germans had gotten to Krasno Selo, just southeast of the city limits, as well as Pushkin, a bit more to the south, some 15 kilometers or 9 miles from the city's edge. To the east, the Germans seemed to be gearing up for the capture of Volkov 
along the southern coast of Ladoga. This would not only require the destruction or removal of the Soviet 54th Army, but would reconnect, truly, the Finns with the Germans. But for now, Zhukov was worried about the Germans right in front of him. Those forces just south and southwest of the city. As he had against the Japanese, the general would reinforce those forces, and then order counterattack after counterattack. This would either drive the Germans back or make them so weak when they did come, their offensive capabilities would be diminished. Either worked for the hard-nosed general of the Soviet army, yet he and his were already behind the eight ball. On the same day that Zhukov arrived in the city, September 13th, Lieb commenced his attacks against Yurisk and Krasnovardisk to the south. Men from the 58th and 1st Infantry, along with tanks and trucks of the 1st Panzer and 36th Motorized Divisions, surged north at Krasno-Selo, just to the south of Yurisk. There, the Soviet 42nd Army waited for them, but were unable to hold the Germans back. Soon, most of the invading troops passed through Krasno-Selo and made for Yurisk. The leadership of the 42nd Army, understandably, panicked. So Zhukov sent in the 10th and 11th Rifle Divisions. But their job was not to strengthen the next line waiting for the Germans. The riflemen were ordered to advance and enact their own offensive at the coming Germans. But more than that, Zhukov wanted the Soviet troops south of this fighting to launch what artillery attacks they could against the aggressors, and the air forces in the area were expected to harass and bomb them as well. Simply, Zhukov wanted no penetration of the defenses. The Leningrad military leader also ordered attacks that were to result in the retaking of Emga and the Schleselberg area. But again, his main focus remained on the area to the south and southwest of the city. The German infantry, tanks, and artillery continued to push those defenders of the 42nd Army in front of them back ever closer to Leningrad. By September 18th, the defenders were pushed back to the outskirts of Uritsk, some 4 kilometers or 2.5 miles from the coast, just southwest of the city. Yet Zhukov saw this coming, so he ordered another defensive line to the south of the city. Comprised of the 21st NKVD Rifle Division, the 6th Army, two naval rifle brigades, and other supporting troops, the line went from the Gulf of Finland to the Neva River to the east of the city, and once formed, no soldier from that line was to move a foot without his express written permission. But something smelled fishy to the general. Something wasn't right. So Zhukov sent Fudniensky to check on the situation of the 42nd Army and its leadership. Sure enough, General Ivanov, the 42nd's leader, had his head in his hands and couldn't tell Zhukov's representative where exactly his men were. Never a good thing. It was then that Ivanov requested to move his headquarters further from the front, from his men, wherever they were, 
Fudaninsky could imagine how Zukov would respond to this request, and with what choice of words. Zukov was known for his colorful, biting words when dressing down an inferior. But he, Fudaninsky, simply refused the request. He then radioed his superior and told him of what he had found, and that, worse yet, the morale of the 42nd Army, along with the 8th and 55th Armies, were at the bottom of the barrel. Zukov's reply was to the point. Take over the 42nd Army, and quickly. Because Zukov was about to launch his own attack. He believed he had found a weak spot in the German line. On September 14th, Zhukov told his local commanders to the south and southwest of Leningrad of his idea to attack. The Germans closest to Yuritsk, which was currently giving the 42nd Army a hard time, had perhaps left their left flank, the Russian right flank, partially open. Therefore, he intended to send the 8th Army of five rifle divisions into the gap and get in behind the Germans coming ever closer to Uritsk. There, the 42nd would hold up the Germans, while the 8th Army got in behind them. Then the two forces would squeeze the trapped attackers, until they broke. Thus, a larger hole would have been created in the German line, which would allow an even larger Russian counterattack. But before Zhukov could battle the Germans, he had to battle his own commanders. General Sherbakov, the commander of the 8th Army, replied, This plan would not work. The men, his men, were tired. Zhukov relieved the man immediately, along with his political officer, something not lightly done. But desperate times. Lieutenant General Shevaldin was given command of the 8th. When he asked did he have a problem with carrying out Zhukov's orders, he replied, yet. But for all of this work and planning, the Germans would ruin Zhukov's plans with their own attack. Simply, they moved out first. As the saying goes, fortune favors the bold. Addendum. To give everyone an idea of the scope that's about to unfold with the Siege of Leningrad, before it's all over, some 750,000 civilians will starve to death. This approximate number is 35 times larger than the number that died in the London Blitz, four times more than when Nagasaki and Hiroshima were bombed. When Germany first invaded Russia, there were some 3 million people residing in Leningrad. Before the Germans arrived at the city's doorstep, some 500,000 civilians had been drafted or evacuated, which left 2.5 million civilians. About 400,000 of those were children. Just 60 kilometers south of the city, the area was known as Dacha Country, where people would go and relax and enjoy the summer. But that was over on June 22nd, as Molotov informed the country by radio. People rushed to the banks to withdraw their money. Others, perhaps those who had experienced the First World War, the Russian Revolution, or the war with Finland, instead rushed to the markets to buy what food they could with what money they had on hand. 
but this was not how it was supposed to go. The street corner loudspeakers, controlled by the party, had been saying for months that because of Stalin's cunning, the capitalists would tear each other apart, which would allow Soviet Russia to gather up the leftovers, like freshly fallen fruit. In truth, Stalin knew the day of war between the two great countries would come, but he believed it would be in 1942, at the earliest, so was caught off guard. In fact, he had told his representative in Leningrad, Andrei Zandov, the Germans have already missed their best moment. Go, go on holiday. So Zandov did on June 19, 1941 for a six-week vacation on the Black Sea. This same arrogant attitude could be said of the men who worked in the Leningrad factories, but their reaction was typical of those who didn't know any better. They believed the mighty Soviet forces would thrash the invaders. The war would be over in a week, but it would probably take two more weeks to march to Berlin. The Finnish soldiers knew better, only having lost to the Russians after overwhelming numbers were brought against them. Just after 9 p.m. on June 21st, the day before Barbarossa was to start, three deserters from the German army, all communists, crossed the river Bug and told their interrogators the war would start at 4 a.m. the next morning. Word of this got back to Moscow. Stalin ordered an emergency meeting of the Politburo and his senior generals. Zhukov wanted the forward troops to be put on high alert, but Stalin said no. It would be premature to issue that order now. It might still be possible to settle the situation by peaceful means. The border units must not allow themselves to be provoked into anything that might cause difficulties. The meeting broke up at 3 a.m. local time, and Stalin went to bed. One hour later, Zhukov called Stalin to tell him their western cities were being bombed. The general had to repeat himself before it sank in for his leader. But Hitler did not understand Russia, Stalin, or the Russian people. But to be fair, Stalin knew little of Hitler and Nazi Germany. As for Hitler, his feelings were the same as the Soviet factory workers. This would be over shortly. He had worked out everything in his mind, or imagination. European Russia was to be cleansed of all Asiatics, the Slavs either made into slaves or killed outright. Moscow, the city, would be replaced by a lake. As for the territory to the east of what Germany would claim of Russia, German troops would occasionally be sent there to keep their fighting skills sharp. It was to be along the lines of a hunting holiday, except on a massive scale, and the game would be Russian peasants. But that was the Russia in Hitler's imagination. This was Leningrad in reality. The Communist Party began calling up reservists and asking for volunteers on June 27th, five days into the war. But by then, the Leningrad leadership had already received 100,000 volunteers for either the army or for military use 
in general. Applications to the Communist Party went up dramatically. Women were volunteering just as much as men. They wanted to be sent to the front. Donations of jewelry, money, and bonds were sent to help pay factory workers' salaries so the machines that made the weapons of war could run 24 hours a day. Families came together and took what would probably be the last photo of all its members. And then, mostly the men, but some women, went off to wherever they were assigned. The Communist Party may have stripped these people of their culture and freedom, but that was homespun terrorism. The Russian people couldn't remember a truly easy time, but now there were outsiders to deal with. The squabbles between the various classes and economic strata could be reconvened later. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So it's been a while since I've thanked uh, new members for coming aboard and supporting the show and people who have bought things. So I just want to do that to to keep that going because I do really appreciate it. And it makes a huge difference here. So as far as welcoming aboard the newest members, let's see, I have Stefan W. from Oslo, Norway, Nicholas S. from Hawks Bay, New Zealand, Nigel H. from Somerset, UK, Daniel A. from Anchorage, Alaska, J.E.D.R. from Netherlands, from the Netherlands, Ian R. from Cornwall, UK, Per Stoffer uh, from Denmark, Mike A. from Anchorage, Alaska. Um, and uh, uh, Mike, I'm sorry that my daughter accidentally called you on my phone. That probably won't happen again. No promises. And I hope you got your login information okay. Um, Greg R. from Santa Maria, California. Solomon I. from Brooklyn, New York. Tina M. from Olympia, Washington. Shelley D. from Hertz, UK. Michael L. from Arlington, Texas. Christian B. from Sydney, Australia. Stephen or Stephen M. from West Islip, New York. You know I don't know how to say that, so I apologize. Um, Javier V. from Singapore. Grant L. from Camelberg, Indiana. Tracy D., who I'm not sure where you're from, Tracy, sorry about that. And W. from Wenatchee, Washington. I think she bought some um, materials as well as became a member, so thank you very much, Ann. Um, John L. from Cumberland, Rhode Island. As for those of you who have just straight up made donations to keep the flow of books coming into this house and the UPS man coming to my door, I just want to say thank you to John T. from Brookfield, Illinois, John B. from Columbus, Ohio, Jamie W. from Lincolnshire, UK, Lincolnshire, Shire, who knows, um, Baba G. Day. For S, I'm not sure where you're from, and I probably butchered your name. Um, Gregory B. from West Fargo, North Dakota. Antonio P. V. from Abu Dhabi, United Arab Emirates. Benny W. from Germantown, Tennessee. 
Isaac P. from Los Angeles, California. So thank you very much for your donations. As for those of you who have purchased mugs, whether they're Churchill or FDR mugs, I just want to say thank you to Gregory M. from Dexter, Michigan, and again, Anne W. from Wenatchee, Washington, if I'm saying that right. And I'd like to thank Ryan D. from T. South Dakota and Michael Y. from Western Springs, Illinois, for buying some of the CDs. And lastly, uh, to Simon B., who works for a company that works for or with the BBC, I'm still seriously considering your offer, just trying to find the time to fit it all in. I thank you very much. I'm glad you like the episodes and you listen to them. I will get back to you as soon as time permits. So again, thank you for everybody who's listening for the rest of the year. Um, pretty much an episode will come out every Saturday, maybe one or two because of the holidays, but that's pretty much the goal for the rest of the year. So thank you for your patience and thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy it and I'll see you again soon next Saturday. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.